We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If not, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. I'm also in our church app. There's a sermon listening guide that can help you follow along, and it has the scripture there as well. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pipper relates the story of a famous physicist that confided in her. This is what the, the physicist said. I'm a scientist, you know, a rational person. I've never seen much need for God. All my life, I've felt in charge and in control. I've been extremely successful and made it to the top. If there's a problem at work, I call a meeting or write a note to my secretary and it is quickly resolved. Yet nothing is simple or easily resolved at home. My children don't relate to me easily. They accuse me of trying to control their lives. When I walk into the same room as my son, he starts to stammer. What hurts is that they can't seem to appreciate how much I care and that I'm doing all of this for them. But I'll tell you one lesson I've learned. I always said that since I had my children's best interests at heart, they'd be glad for my direction. 
My children have taught me the hardest lesson of my life, that I'm not in control over what matters to me most. It's funny, but it's now when I see I'm not God that I see I need some help. The question of whether there is a God has finally started to matter. Now, we can all relate to that, whether you have children or not. There are times in life when you come to the realization because of a certain circumstance or a certain situation, you come to the realization, I'm not in control. I can't fix this problem. I can't heal what's fractured. There's a desperate sense of I'm not in control and and I don't have any solutions. In this passage in Matthew chapter nine, all the people that Jesus healed were desperate. It starts with the ruler of the synagogue. This was a synagogue official. By this point in time, the officials of synagogues were beginning to see and believe that Jesus was a heretic. So for any official in a synagogue to actually turn to Jesus was a huge risk. And it had to be desperate for an official to make that move considering all his colleagues and what they thought of Jesus. The woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, she was ceremonially unclean in the religious system of the day, in the Jewish system, which meant that she could not join God's people in worship, which also means she shouldn't have been mingling in a crowd and touching people. She was desperate. She was desperate. And you move on to the two blind men as they utter this cry to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. When you go to Matthew 20, you find a very similar story of of the two blind men that come to Jesus in the crowds and say, have mercy on us. And the crowds say, be quiet. Stop, be quiet, pipe down, right? And they keep crying all all the louder. In the face of public opposition, they keep crying out to Jesus because they're desperate. The same could be true of this mute man who is possessed by a demon. They were desperate because they could not fix the problem. The synagogue official could not raise his daughter from the dead. The hemorrhaging woman could not heal herself. The two blind men couldn't make themselves see. The mute man couldn't cast out the demons. They were desperate because they could not fix or heal the problem. Now that should sound familiar. There's something, and this could be a wide ranging scale, but there's something in your life right now that you can't fix, that you wish you could, that you wish we're different. You can't snap your fingers and make it better. You don't, you don't have the resources or the strength in yourself to trust in yourself to get it done. 
your trust has to lie elsewhere. The desperation of these people in this passage is coupled with faith. In fact, Jesus explicitly calls out the faith of the woman and of the two blind men. He says to the woman, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. To the two blind men, he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. They trusted Jesus, which is what faith is. Faith is trust. But the question is, why? Why can you trust Jesus? Why is he trustworthy? Why can you trust him when life seems to spin out of control? Why can you trust Jesus? Now, the, the, the very simple three-word answer that we're gonna unpack is that he is faithful. And I'll add some words to that. All the time, no matter what. And what we see in this passage is the faithfulness of Jesus is highlighted in several ways. First, Jesus is faithful in the face of opposition. Jesus was always in control. When you read through the gospels, he was always in control even when things seemed to be spinning out of control. He was unwavering in his commitment to his father's plan. He was resolute in the face of all kinds of opposition that came his way. And what we see here in these healing stories is two forms of opposition that come at Jesus. Right? The first appears in the, the story of the blind men being healed. They address Jesus in verse 27. And they say, have mercy on us, son of David. When they addressed him as son of David, they were addressing him as Messiah. And they were thinking, they were beginning to wonder, could this be the Messiah that we've read about in Isaiah 35, 5? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. These two blind men were thinking, is this the man that Isaiah was talking about who will open the eyes of the blind? Is this him? Now, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, was written 700 to 750 years before Christ came. And it is a book that speaks about who Jesus is and what he would do. 700 to 750 years before Jesus would come. And it's in that book that it lays out very clearly what God the Father's plan for his son was. The problem is when you get to the gospels, people had very different plans for Jesus. Very different plans than what were laid out in the, in, in the book of Isaiah. You say, how do we know that? How do we know they had different plans? Well, there's, there's two truths that come out of this healing of the blind men that are significant. Number one, you'll notice that when these blind men call out to Jesus, he is walking along the road. He's got crowds around him, and it's subtle in the text, but he doesn't respond to them right away. In fact, verse 28, when, when Jesus entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? 
So Jesus is walking along the road, crowds around him. These blind men say, son of, son of David, have mercy on us. They're, they're crying out to him. And it appears as though Jesus, as he's walking along with the crowds, ignores them. They keep following, they're persistent, all the way into the house that he goes to. And it's when he's in the house in private that he actually responds to them. You say, well, why? Why didn't Jesus respond out in the crowds? Well, we, we learn, it's confirmed that Jesus, he didn't wanna heal them in public. Why? Verse 30, and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Why didn't Jesus want anyone to know about this? Well, they had addressed him as son of David. And that was them addressing him as Messiah, son of David. David was one of Israel's great kings. Jesus did not want them to think that he was a political Messiah, meaning that he was coming on the scene to crush the enemies, crush the Romans, and immediately get rid of all oppression and suffering in Israel. That's what they wanted. That was their plans for Jesus. He's a political Messiah, rush him onto the scene and win. And yet the father's plan for his son was much more than just him coming to open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and heal the lame and mute. Isaiah chapter 53 says that the father's plan was for Jesus to come and to suffer. Isaiah 53, seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The father had plans for his son to suffer. The people had very different plans. And what you see in the gospels is that the people that were following Jesus continually were trying to sidetrack his mission and steer him away from the cross, even his own disciples. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna suffer and be killed. And Peter pipes right up and he says, no, 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 Jesus, that's not the plan, no. And then Jesus famously says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You get to the garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is suffering in the garden, being tempted to not go to the cross, to find salvation some other way, to be tempted to be steered away from the cross, to not drink the cup of God's wrath. It's in the face of heavy opposition that attempted to sidetrack Jesus' mission that he was resolute, he was unwavering in his commitment to perfectly execute his father's plan. There was no peer pressure. There was no crowd pressure. There was nothing that was going to deter him from perfectly executing his father's plan, which included rejection and included suffering. When you feel out of control or when life seems to be spinning out of control, 
if you're anything like me, you have plans for Jesus. We all do. When life starts to unwind on us, we have plans for Jesus, but so often, our plans for Jesus are not his plans for us. And it's in that moment when things are spinning out of control and you begin to believe there must be a better way. You begin to believe, I, I, Jesus, I don't know that you really have this, that you're reminded of the plan that God had for his son that was perfectly accomplished, culminating in the cross and the resurrection, but that extends into your life today. And what that means is that Jesus is and will perfectly execute the Father's plan for this world and for your life. He will not be deterred. There is no opposition that can come there's no rejection that can come. There's no suffering that can come that is not Jesus executing the Father's good plan. There's no evil. There's no cultural moment. There's no political leader. There's no personal enemy. There's no suffering. There, nothing can thwart Jesus from perfectly executing the Father's good plan for your life. And so the opposition to Jesus takes on the form of attempts to sidetrack his mission, but it's not only that. The opposition to Jesus takes on the form of mockery and slander. After Jesus heals this woman, he arrives at the synagogue ruler's house where his daughter had died. The funeral was already happening. The flute players were playing. And it says that the crowd was making a commotion. You know what that commotion was? People wailing loudly, wailing, crying, mourning over the death of this girl. And Jesus says in verse 24, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, falling asleep, death is described in the terms of falling asleep in other parts of the scripture. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, she's really not dead, she's just asleep. It's not what he was saying. He was saying, this girl's death is not as final as you mourners think. Because in the presence of Jesus, under his authority, death must flee. Death is stripped of its power, reducing it to the likeness of falling asleep. That's what was happening here. Now, why were they laughing at him? Maybe they thought that this man, intoxicated by his own success, was gonna try out his skills on a corpse and make a fool of himself. This was mockery, mockery of Jesus. Then we get to the mute man, who is, uh, the demons are cast out of him. The Pharisees say in verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They thought if Jesus has control over demons, he must be in cahoots with him. 
And so they take this good work of Jesus and they ascribe it to evil. They slandered him. They slandered him. They accused him of partnering with the devil. Now, when you get mocked and slandered, what do you wanna do? You wanna punch that person in the face. That's what I wanna do. And yet Jesus didn't do that. He absorbed it. Didn't say anything. When he was laughed at, this is God in the flesh getting laughed at. When he was slandered, he absorbed it. Why? Because part of the Father's mission for Jesus was rejection. He was perfectly fulfilling his Father's mission, and that meant rejection, slander, mockery, and absorbing it, taking it in. When you're mocked and when you're slandered and you trust Jesus in the midst of that, he gives you the strength to respond as he did, which is to absorb it. And in doing so, to put the strength of Jesus on display for those who are mocking and those who are slandering you. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. What that means is that you can't expect to be treated better than Jesus was. As a follower of Christ, you can't expect to be treated better, which means mockery, slander that comes your way is an opportunity. You can trust Jesus when, when things are spinning out of control, maybe in the form of mockery, slander, which usually starts to undermine your reputation. And that gets really concerning when your reputation starts to get undermined. But you can trust Jesus and you can absorb it and not retaliate as he did. And in doing so, put his strength on display. And then here's one of the fruits that comes out of you trusting Jesus in those moments is that your trustworthiness as a leader, your trustworthiness as a friend, as a coworker, as a family member, grows as people experience Christ. When you absorb and don't retaliate, Jesus' strength moves through you and people are confronted with Jesus, not you. Now, when someone's confronted with Jesus, they may do one of two things. They may soften, they may harden, but they're confronted with Jesus and not you. Your trustworthiness grows. Why can you trust Jesus when life spins out of control? Because he is faithful in the face of opposition. But second, he is faithful when you are not perfectly faithful. Notice, Jesus addresses, explicitly addresses the faith of two of the people he healed. First, the woman, 
And then the two blind men. To the woman, he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then to the two blind men, he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean in proportion to your faith? More faith, better results. Uh, 50% faith, 50% healing. So with the blind men, they had about 50% faith. Okay, I'll heal one eye, but not the other. 75% faith, 75% healing. What's that mean according to your faith? It's not in proportionality to your faith. That means in factuality. In other words, since you have faith, may it be done to you. The emphasis here is not so much on the strength of the person's faith as the strength of the object of their faith, which is Jesus Christ. That's what's being emphasized here. The strength of their faith varied. We're gonna see it in a moment. But the object of their faith, Jesus Christ, is what they held in common. And it was the object of their faith, Jesus, that brought the healing. Look at the different degrees and kinds of faith that are represented in these healings. They're, they're really, they're wide and they're broad. You've got the synagogue ruler. Now he displays a very confident and strong faith in the midst of taking a huge risk. His colleagues had declared Jesus a heretic. And so he's taking the, the risk of, no, I believe that Jesus will heal my daughter. He was taking a huge risk. It was a strong faith. Then you get to the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Hers was more of a superstitious faith. Notice what she said, if I can just touch his garment, almost like magic, right? If I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. Now, Jesus responded to her and said that she did have faith, but it was a faith that was in some ways combined with superstition. Imagine if a, uh, if a palm reader or a psychic reader came to Christ. You can imagine that there would be a lot of superstition early on that's kind of meshed in with faith in Jesus, more of a magic type view, right? There, this, this woman had, had more of a superstitious type faith. Then you get to the two blind men and the two blind men, theirs is a hopeful messianic faith. They are they're thinking back to the book of Isaiah. They're clinging to the promises of the Old Testament that is rooting their faith now in the Messiah when he comes on the scene. So theirs wasn't a superstitious faith. It was a faith, faith rooted in the Old Testament, what the Old Testament scripture said. Or if we back up to chapter eight in Matthew, you've got the centurion who believed that Jesus could heal his servant from afar. He didn't even need to be in the room with him or touch him. He could just say the word from miles away. That's a strong faith. That's a confident faith. And then you get to the disciples on the boat in the storm. And the disciples are displaying a very weak faith. In fact, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, as they think that Jesus is asleep on the boat and somehow they're gonna have to save themselves with God in the flesh on the boat with them, right? So you have all these different degrees and kinds of faith. What's interesting is that all of these faiths prove effective and fruitful. 
Why? Because the emphasis is not on strength or purity of faith. It's on the object of faith, Jesus Christ. Not on the strength of faith, but on the object of faith. Let me give you two examples to illustrate this. What would be an example of a, a strong faith? Let me back up for a second. Emphasis on object of faith, not on strength of faith. Faith must be founded on fact. Meaning faith must have an object, Jesus Christ. Right? Faith must be founded on an object. The effectiveness of faith depends on the object of faith, not the strength of the person's faith. Now, let me give you two examples of this. First, what would it look like to have a very sincere, strong faith with the wrong object that is therefore ineffective? Think about the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. The prophets in 1 Kings 18 are calling on their God, Baal, to send fire upon their offering. And it says that they are crying aloud. It says that they pray from morning till noon. They hold a half day prayer meeting. They are sincere. And, and, then, and then Baal by that time, their God doesn't answer them. So then they move to cutting themselves until they're shedding some blood as a sacrifice to Baal. This is a picture of sincere, passionate, strong faith. But Baal never answers them. Why? Because they had the wrong object. The object of their faith wasn't fact. It didn't exist. It was a man-made God that they had put together, that they had crafted, that they were calling upon. And so you have strong faith, wrong object, ineffective. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, historical fact, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile, it's fruitless, it's ineffective. Faith is founded upon fact. It's founded upon the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ. Now, let me flip this around. What's the example or what's an example of weak faith with the right object that is therefore effective and fruitful. D.A. Carson gives a great example of this using the first Passover when God's people were coming out of Egypt and they were on the eve of being delivered from that slavery and that oppression. They had witnessed nine plagues and they were coming to the 10th plague. And so he, he makes this fictitious conversation between uh, Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones that they're having over their back fence in their backyard okay, at this first Passover. Because they had already seen these plagues. They had already seen what had befallen Egypt in these plagues and it had spilled over into the land of Goshen where the Israelites lived. And so they're having this discussion. Here's how it goes. Mr. Jones confesses his deep worries over the coming night. He says, of course I'm concerned. Shouldn't I be? 
God has sent waves of plagues, flies, frogs, darkness, water turning to blood, but this latest announcement is frankly terrifying. The loss of the firstborn in every household in Egypt, the nation will be shattered. Mr. Smith replies, but haven't you done what Moses said? And daubed the side posts and lentil with blood from the Paschal lamb? Mr. Joan replies, of course, I'm an Israelite just like you. But a bloodstain or two seems a strangely weak way to stop the ravages of the angel of death. I'm terrified for my son and I don't know what else I can do to ensure his safety. Mr. Smith sighs, you've done all you need to, all you can do. You know that I've got a son too and I'm perfectly confident that he is safe. God has promised through Moses that in households where the blood has been applied as stipulated, the firstborn male will be safe. Don't you think God will keep his word? Where is your faith? And Mr. Jones replies, he's hesitant and troubled. Please don't give me moralizing sermons about faith. I'm scared. And that's all there is to it. I've sprinkled blood around just as God said, but I'm frightened for my son and I wish I could do something to guarantee his safety. Now that night, the angel of death comes through the land. Most households are filled with shrieking and wailing because the firstborn of Egypt dies. Here's the question. Which man, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones, lost their firstborn son? Neither, right, neither, because they had enough faith in what God had asked them to do, which was to put the blood on the doorposts. But beyond that, the outcome was completely, completely up to the promises of God, which God had promised that those that put the blood on the doorpost would be safe. This illustration reveals two people, Mr. Smith who had strong faith and Mr. Jones who had weak faith. Both had faith. And because of that, both experienced the Passover, judgment passing over their house because of the object of their faith, which in the first Passover was pointing to the blood of Jesus. They were looking forward, we're looking back to the same event in history, fact, Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's the object of faith. What's more important than the strength of your faith is the faithfulness of Jesus. Let me say that again. What is more important than the strength of your faith is the faithfulness of Jesus. And when you realize that and when you begin to focus on that, your faith actually becomes stronger the more that you greatly appreciate the one on whom your faith rests. Now, that's personal application. There's a communal application here. This church is full of people from very different backgrounds and upbringings. There are people who were raised in a much more new age, mystical, 
superstitious type of environment who have come to faith in Christ and struggle to get past that. Like this woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years, who put faith in Jesus, but also had this superstition mixed into it. There are people in this church who have come from very legalistic and works-centered type backgrounds that whenever they fall into sin, they're concerned that they've lost their salvation. There are people in this church that have come from spiritually manipulative, abusive type backgrounds that struggle to trust anyone, Jesus, people, leadership. All these degrees and variations of faith. When you understand that is the object of our faith that saves and not our faith that saves, but the object of faith, it leaves no room for judgment and no room for spiritual elitism. None. It leaves room for love, mercy, grace, understanding, acceptance. But I will say this, that can only happen if we are staring at Jesus, the object of our faith, and not staring at each other's faith. You see the difference? It's when we stare at each other's faith, all these different kinds and backgrounds, that we start to get judgmental. We start to feel better or worse about ourselves, spiritually elite or lesser than. But when we're faced together staring at the object of our faith, Jesus, then what that produces is grace, mercy, understanding, acceptance from people that come from very, very different back, backgrounds and upbringings. You can trust Jesus because he is faithful. He's faithful in the face of opposition and he is faithful when you're not perfectly faithful. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that oftentimes when it comes to the church and it comes to a community of broken people that we can become very judgmental, that we can become spiritual elitists as we tend to stare at people's faith, strong, weak, whatever it may be. And Father, thank you for the emphasis through your gospels and hearing these healings that the emphasis is not on strength of faith, but on strength of the object of faith, on Jesus Christ. And would you make us a people as, as in our own lives things spin out of control? When we are confronted with the fact that we can't fix situations, when we're confronted with the fact that we can't heal what's fractured, would you remind us that Jesus is faithful all the time, no matter what? In his own life, facing opposition, mockery, slander, 
and that when we feel our faith is waning or, or our faith is weak, that we would remember it's not our, our weak or strong faith that saves us, that it's, it's Jesus. But Father, I do pray for those here that have never placed their faith in Jesus, that they've never trusted Jesus, that you would draw them to him, that they would see in Jesus a healer, a transformer, one who changes, but one who's trustworthy and one who has a, is executing your perfect plan, both in redemptive history at the cross and resurrection and through the lives of your children. Father, as we prepare now for the Lord's Supper, that is the fulfillment and the transformation of Passover into what we experience today because of the blood shed by Jesus Christ. Would you fill us? Would you give us hope? In the midst of our lives in various places seeming to spin out of control, would you give us hope this morning as we fix our eyes on Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray, amen.